The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the first observation of a long-sought isotope of oxygen. And the AI that can beat humans at drone racing. I'm Dan Fox. And I'm Nick Petrichow. After decades of experiments, physicists have observed an unusual isotope of oxygen known as oxygen 28 for the very first time. This is a momentous discovery for nuclear physics and may challenge our theoretical models of how atomic nuclei work. But before we get to oxygen 28 and why it's got physicists so excited, we need to start with some background about the structure of atomic nuclei and explain a few bits of terminology. Atomic nuclei are made of protons and neutrons, with the number of protons determining the identity of the element. And both these subatomic particles are arranged in the atom in something akin to layers. They are arranged like in an onion-like structure. So in other words, that's like some discrete shells. This is Rito Kanungo, a nuclear physicist who's been writing a News & Views article about the new discovery. These layers, or shells as they're known, are made up of varying numbers of protons and neutrons which convey different properties to the nucleus. And when one shell gets totally filled, that's what's called a magic number. Magic. That's the real term that physicists use. It refers to the specific number of protons or neutrons needed to complete one of these shells or layers, such as 2, 8, 20 or 28. In this magic state, nuclei are what's known as bound. The neutrons and protons that make them up stick together better and are less liable to break apart. You can think of them as being more stable. This stability means that magical nuclei are more common in nature. And some nuclei have this property for both their protons and their neutrons, which makes them even more stable. This is what's called doubly magic. Doubly magic means both neutrons close-shelled, and protons close-shelled. Now if I have, let's say, two neutrons and two protons, that will make it doubly magic. So a nucleus that has two neutrons and two protons is helium. 
So helium is the second most abundant element in the universe. Another example of a doubly magic nucleus is the oxygen all around us, oxygen 16. This is made up of 8 neutrons and 8 protons, both magic, so very stable. But oxygen 16 is quite different from oxygen 28, a strange isotope that researchers have theorised would also be doubly magic. Oxygen 28 would still have 8 protons, a magic number, which is why it's still oxygen rather than another element, but it would have a magic 20 neutrons. Observing such an isotope with a huge imbalance between the number of protons and neutrons would allow scientists to put their theories about how nuclei and how magic numbers work to the test. So for decades, researchers have been trying to find it, but without much success until now. This week, a paper in Nature shows the first observation of oxygen-28. And the result was, actually, oxygen-28 was not doubly magic. This is Takashi Nakamura, one of the team behind this discovery. And if that sounds like a bit of a letdown, it isn't, but we'll come to that in a second. Now, Takashi and the team have shown that rather than being stable, as would be predicted by a doubly magic nature... Oxygen-28 only existed for a fleeting moment. The lifetime is, well, we cannot measure the lifetime, but we expect that the lifetime is like 10 to the minus 21st seconds. The power of minus 21st. So that is, I, I don't know, very, very short, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just made and just decays. This incredibly short existence was actually kind of expected. Oxygen-28 was known to be unbound, meaning that its neutrons would quickly fly off. So instead of looking for traces of a doubly magic nucleus, Takashi and the team instead looked for the decay products of a short-lived Oxygen-28. They theorised that if Oxygen-28 was not doubly magic, it would decay into four neutrons and one Oxygen-24. So the team set about making an experiment that could detect these decay products which was no mean feat, as neutrons are really hard to detect. This detection of four neutrons was very, very tough. So nobody could do it. These neutrons are very like uh, ghosts, right? Neutrons are like uh, neutral particles. So it can sometimes react with some material. Then we know that neutrons are there. But sometimes it just scattered without leaving any signal, right? So then it's like a ghost. So most of the experiment cannot measure three neutrons or four neutrons. So we needed to really set up a very good, sophisticated neutron detector system. So this is the first four neutron measurement ever done. To achieve this feat required an international collaboration and state-of-the-art detection equipment to try and catch those ghostly neutrons. With that in place... Takashi and the team started trying to make Oxygen-28, however fleetingly. They started with a neutron-rich isotope of calcium known as calcium-48, which is relatively stable. Such an isotope can be broken down into different nuclei, including Oxygen-28. And to trigger that process, they started by firing it at a beryllium target. And then this hits uh, the beryllium target first. And then from calcium-48, several neutrons, protons are removed. 
to produce Florine 29. And Florine 29 is short-lived, but it's much more stable than Oxygen 28 to survive more than millisecond or something. So that it can be transported from the production point to the experimental point, about, I think, 30 or 40 meters away. And during this 40 meters process, Florine 29 was kind of purified. And then Florine 29 hits a proton to knock out this proton. So Florine 29 has nine protons, okay? So nine protons minus one goes to eight protons, which is oxygen, right? So now we have oxygen 28. This experiment was actually conducted several years ago. But since then, a lot of maths and simulations have been required to really make sure that oxygen 28 was detected, or at least oxygen 24 and four neutrons. And that is what they present in this paper. The fact that oxygen 28 was not doubly magic was expected, but still raises questions, as it shows how our understanding of what makes something doubly magic is limited. The data the team gathered here as well will allow researchers to quantitatively probe how Oxygen 28 challenges their expectations, something they could only theorise about before. And more broadly, this result implies there's a lot scientists still don't know about nuclear physics, in particular the strong force that holds nuclei together. It may in fact challenge physicists' concepts of how nuclei work, and so will help them understand some of the fundamental forces that help make up all matter in the universe. Here's Ritu, who you heard from earlier, to explain. And the interesting thing is none of the theory predictions, which are really state-of-the-art predictions, were able to explain or agree really with the observed mass or the energy. So now that brings a bigger question. If we know everything about nature, then there are no surprises. We know it all. So it should all fall in place. And therefore, this is pointing to the bigger question that whether our knowledge on nature's strong interaction is complete, it clearly says it is not, because if it is complete, then we would uh, know everything, and we do not know. That was Rito Kanungo from St. Mary's University in Canada. You also heard from Takashi Nakamura from Tokyo Institute of Technology in Japan. For more on this story, check out the show notes for a link to Takashi's paper and to a News of Views article written by Ritu. Coming up, how an AI has been designed to take on the challenge of racing a drone in the real world. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Venus flytraps can recognise when a wildfire is coming and snap shut to protect their flesh-eating traps. The famously carnivorous plant lives in swamps, where they're frequently exposed to fires. A team in Germany investigating this covered study plants with hay to mimic their natural habitat, and then set the area on fire. One of the plants survived and could still trap prey, despite having burned. Intrigued, the researchers brought lit matches close to the plants, and found that they snapped shut as the flames approached. On examining the plant's trigger hairs, which caused the traps to close around prey, the authors found a molecular heat sensor that activates the hairs if the temperature rises rapidly. 
The authors think that by triggering the traps to close, heat sensors protect the plant's trigger hairs and so allow them to continue hunting prey throughout hot summers. You can read more on that in Current Biology. An ordinary ballpoint pen loaded with conductive inks can write LEDs onto textiles, packaging and more. Perovskites are a class of semiconducting material that have excellent optical and electronic properties and hold promise for making efficient solar cells and LEDs. And unlike conventional semiconductors such as silicon, perovskites can be handled in the form of solutions. And so a team in the USA formulated a series of viscous yet spreadable inks by dissolving various components in solvent mixtures. They loaded each ink into a commercial ballpoint pen and used the pens to write an LED. This consisted of a layer of the perovskite ink between an anode and a cathode made of a conductive polymer and nanometer-wide silver threads. By switching between various perovskites, the authors could make red, green and blue LEDs on various objects, including rubber balloons and glass vials. According to the authors, this could be a handy, low-cost way to integrate simple displays and sensors into clothing and packaging. Read more in Nature Photonics. Artificial intelligences have been pretty successful at beating us humans at our own games. For a long time, AIs have excelled at chess, but more recently, even in fast-paced video games like StarCraft requiring split-second reactions and decision-making, AIs are coming out on top. But these all have something in common. The virtual world where the AI trains and the place where it competes are the same. This has meant that humans have remained dominant in the real world in things like sports where it's a little different from a simulation. But perhaps not anymore. Now, in a new paper in Nature, there's an AI that can beat champion drone racers. Drone racing is a very fast-paced sport. We have a lot of acceleration where you're basically instantly hitting your top speed or within half a second. This is Thomas Bitmata, a champion in what is known as first-person view or FPV drone racing, where contenders wear goggles to see what the drones see as it whips around the 3D course ducking and weaving through a series of gates at high speeds in races that can be over in seconds. And that top speed can be a range of 100 kilometers an hour all the way through to above 200 kilometers an hour. In my case, that would be 217 is the best I've ever clocked. These dizzying speeds require competitors to have incredible reactions and spatial awareness. This makes it a tall challenge for an AI pilot. And here, AIs can't just be trained in a virtual world. The interesting challenge of FPV racing is actually that this challenge requires to push a real physical robot to its limits, which, to my knowledge, hasn't been done before. This is Elia Kaufman, one of the team behind this new AI. Now, they're not the first to try and make an AI to pilot racing drones. But the real world poses a lot of challenges. In something like chess or StarCraft, the playing field can be exactly simulated and will function the same on the day of the competition. You don't need to take into account subtle changes in wind, for example. Not so for drone racing. Another problem is motion blur. When a camera moves really fast, 
like if it's on a racing drone, say, then the image blurs. This blurring makes it hard for AIs to interpret camera images and work out where the drone is. Kind of important knowledge when you're in a race. So Elia and the team have developed SWIFT, a two-part AI system which determines where the drone is and where to fly it using onboard cameras and sensors, ultimately allowing it to beat its human opponents. SWIFT starts, like most AIs start, with a whole bunch of simulating. The AI takes a representation of the course and the route the drone has to take and performs multiple virtual runs to determine the fastest way around it. In an hour, it can simulate an equivalent of around 23 days worth of flying around the course. But these simulated estimates are not enough. Again, the real world comes to bite. If you rely on simulation to do this, we need to very accurately match what we observe in the real world. So kind of how much uplift we see, how much drag we see with what we observe in the simulation. If this would not be the case, then you see a large drop in performance. If the real world is a bit different from the drone simulated expectations, then it can veer off course and crash. But this is where the SWIFT system can adapt. After the first bout of simulation, it takes a few test flights and uses an external camera system to monitor the drone as it moves around the course. This, combined with the drone's onboard camera and sensors, allows the AI to take into account things like air turbulence that differ from the simulations. And to deal with the motion blur, it uses a neural network to identify and track the gates as it flies around the course. Altogether, this meant that the AI was able to work out the best racing lines to take around the course and estimate its position well enough to take them. The next step was to test it against some real-world opponents. In this case, a group of champion human drone racers who'd had a week to practice on the course. And the AI beat them all. Here's one of the unlucky opponents, Thomas Bitmarter, who you heard from earlier. Racing against the AI drone was a really fun challenge. It took near-perfect lines, and I honestly think in most club-level races, with the system as it is, with a bigger drone that's quite a heavy machine, it would actually still outperform most human pilots. It flies that good. It wasn't perfect, though. While it won most races overall, out of seven races with Thomas, it only won four. For example, sometimes it would crash into an opponent. These other drones were not there when the AI did its simulations and test runs, so it didn't know to avoid them. And while a human can recover from a crash, the AI hadn't been trained to do this, leaving it floundering as the opponents raced on. The real world also had some more curveballs to throw at it, like lighting. If the lighting were to change... For example, if the sun were to set after the AI had done its fine-tuning, then it would struggle on the course. One of the main limitations of the current system is that it's very sensitive to environmental changes, specifically illumination changes. So if we fine-tune our system based on you know, environment conditions that are substantially different to the environment condition that we then actually deploy the system, we saw a large drop in robustness, which means that we frequently couldn't complete a lap or that we, yeah, that we crash into gates. Elia does think this can be overcome with more training data. But in general, the real world being different from what the drone expects is still a problem. Altogether, though, Elia believes that this champion-beating AI is a milestone and one that could have a range of applications, even in our fickle real world.
the insights that we gain by pushing these autonomous robots to the limits allow us to transfer these insights to other domains. For example, we could speed up drones that do search and rescue missions. We could speed up drones that do autonomous inspections of buildings, for example, because at the end of the day, a drone is, is limited in flight time. So if we can transfer the insights that we gain with this research to make in general autonomous drones fly faster in other missions, we could improve the utility of drones. That was Elia Kaufmann, formerly from the University of Zurich in Switzerland and currently at the drone manufacturer Skydio in the US. You also heard from Thomas Bitmata, two-time multi-GP international Open World Cup champion in first-person view drone racing. For more on this story, check out the show notes where there'll be a link to a video I've made showing the drones in action. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. Dan, what have you been reading about this week? Well, I've been reading in Nature about this week's successful lunar landing, Chandrayaan-3, India's lunar lander touching down near the southern pole of the moon making India only the fourth country to ever have a successful controlled landing on the moon. Oh right, Ben actually mentioned this last week when we were talking about Russia's sort of failed mission to the moon. And so it sounds like India was a lot more successful. I guess I'm wondering what went right here. Well, I guess, you know, in some ways it's it's good news for Russia because this is a success built in part on the failures of Chandrayaan-2, which successfully launched an orbiter with functioning instruments, but the lander carrying the moon rover crashed onto the lunar surface just at the final moments of its landing. And so the ISRO really, you know, took some lessons from this, made several design changes to the lander rover portion of the mission, added a laser sensor to measure real-time velocity of the spacecraft, improved algorithms for judging deviations in propulsion and trajectory, and then generally just made the lander sort of bigger and tougher. So more solar panels, more fuel, and sort of heavier, sturdier legs, able to handle a much faster landing velocity. So just, you know, a bit of a tougher craft. They also gave themselves a much larger target area. So Chandrayaan-2 was aiming for a patch half a kilometre by half a kilometre. Chandrayaan-3, on the other hand, was aiming for an area four kilometres by 2.4 kilometres. So just a much bigger area for it to land on. Obviously, we've already talked about Russia's attempt. They were also aiming for the South Pole. And there's been a few missions going for this sort of South Pole of the moon. But it's all been quite difficult for everyone. So what are the challenges that Chandrayaan had to overcome in order to actually make a successful landing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the poles are actually incredibly challenging places to land. And by comparison, the Apollo missions sort of had it easy. They specifically aimed for somewhere that was easy to touch down on. The moon's poles have very sort of rough, rocky terrain. It's difficult to find sort of the flat spaces that a lander's looking for. And obviously landing sort of on a slope or hitting a boulder is pretty much a failure for a lander. But also even getting into position to land at one of the poles is is more difficult. It requires entering a polar orbit, which requires additional energy to move the spacecraft into that position and introduces other uncertainties around velocity and location of the spacecraft. So even just getting ready to land is a challenge. Then at the pole, as I mentioned, it's very rocky. It's a difficult terrain to land on, but it also has some real extremes of light and dark, which make it difficult to see what's going on. There are areas that are 
completely in the dark. There are areas that are in very extreme angle of light. So that also obscures where they're going to touch down. And so now the lander is on the moon. What's the plan? What are they aiming to do now they're there? Well, just touching down on the moon surface was one of the key objectives of this project. That's a a massive success. As I mentioned at the start, that makes India only the fourth country after the United States, the Soviet Union and China to successfully land a craft on the surface of the moon. But now that the lander's down, it's going to release a six-wheeled robotic rover called Pragyan, which is going to ramble around for the next 14 Earth days, or one lunar day, doing experiments looking at the surface of the moon. Well, congrats to the Indian Space Agency for this successful mission, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it as the weeks go by, or at least the lunar days go by. But for my story this week, I've been looking at something that we've talked about a bit before on the briefing chat, which is about scientists whose first language isn't English and the sort of difficulties and travails that come with that participating in science which is predominantly conducted in English. And this article that I was reading about in Nature is specifically looking at how journals accommodate scientists who are not native English speakers and essentially they're not doing a great job is the takeaway. So how are journals failing you know, the portion of the scientific world who don't speak English. Well, this article is based on a study, which I must say is a preprint, so it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. But this is a study that has looked at biological sciences journals, and they've sort of looked at the guidelines that are available to authors when they submit their scientific manuscripts for publishing and peer review. And the vast, vast majority, in fact, Every single one of the ones they looked at, which was 736 journals, bar two, don't actually have explicit policies of not rejecting manuscripts based on the quality of English. So they could, if they wish to, reject a manuscript based on English, at least according to their guidelines. And overall, the study finds there isn't a great amount done to help people whose first language isn't English if they're trying to publish a paper. Wow, those are pretty stark numbers. Out of interest, do we know which are the two journals which did have guidelines around this? We do. So it was actually Nature Plants and Nature. And, you know, for the basis of this, I should say that Nature's news team is editorially independent of its journal team. So those were the only two journals that had specific guidelines that manuscripts would not be rejected solely on the grounds of perceived English quality. Now, other journals did have different things that were there to help researchers whose first language isn't English, but it was by far the minority. So, for example, around 8% of journals made their guidelines available in a different language other than English. Less than 7% allowed authors to publish articles in language other than English. And 10% explicitly allowed researchers to use references that were from papers published in a different language than English. So, journals vary in how much they do, but I think it's fair to say the vast majority of the ones at least looked at in this study are not doing a great amount to help people whose first language isn't English. Do the authors of this study make any suggestions about what journals should be doing to improve this? Yeah, so in the article, there's a few different examples of different societies and journals that are doing things to try and help with this issue. So the Society for the Study of Evolution has an English language mentoring program. So the authors there, they get to work with an editor who's specifically there to help with 
English and clarity of the text. Other societies have like buddy systems or volunteers that can help with English language. And one other thing that the article touches on is just being mindful of the fact that someone's first language isn't English. There was a researcher who was interviewed for this article whose first language was not English and they said that they were deeply affected by what a reviewer wrote about their manuscript. The reviewer said that their sloppy language challenged the credibility of their work and this researcher who was interviewed, they said that this review really destroyed their confidence in their science. So really trying to be mindful of the fact that not everyone is coming from the same level and understanding of English could be really helpful. And they do also suggest that maybe AI tools could help with this in the future. Perhaps there'll be AI proofreading services and things like that. Some journals do suggest that people use professional um, editing services, but you know that's not really affordable for everyone. So maybe some of these AI tools can sort of fill in the gap. And finally, one thing that a researcher interviewed for this article suggests is maybe journals could offer an extended abstract for researchers that they could write in their native language to sort of explain the science clearly in simple words that then would be accessible for everyone. Well, hopefully journals will be able to implement some of these suggestions in the paper and start taking these language considerations into account. Thanks, Nick. I think that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefing Chat. Listeners, for more on those stories, check out the show notes for some links and a link to where you can sign up to The Nature Briefing to get more stories like those direct to your inbox. That's all for this week. As always, you can keep in touch with us on X, we're at Nature Podcast, or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Dan Fox. Thanks for listening. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a thousand new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.